Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. There's probably not a person on the planet, Kyan, who hasn't faced some existential, at least question, over the last three years. Do I want to keep doing this work anymore? Why am I here? We've all had to go inwardly to our very core at some point in time during these last three years. So we have changed, we the human species, if you will, in one collective moment over a three-year period. And at the same time, technology marches on. As Kevin Kelly would say, technology doesn't necessarily have a conscience. It just keeps on marching forward. So how do we reconcile humanity and technology in a way that is beneficial for all of us? Tony O'Driscoll is a professor, speaker, author, and advisor whose message emphasizes that the key digital age differentiator is not technology, but people. He's the co-author of the newly released book, Everyday Superhero, How You Can Inspire Everyone and Create Real Change at Work. Tony's current position says an adjunct professor at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and at the Pratt School of Engineering afford him a unique opportunity to apply cutting-edge academic research to increasingly complex business challenges. He spent the bulk of his professional and academic career at the nexus of business, innovation, technology, change, and learning, creating and implementing strategies that enable organizations to realize the full potential of their most valuable asset, human beings. There are few people in the world who have thought as deeply about the interface of technology and human organizations and imagine what the future models might be for how organizations will evolve he has spoken to our OutThinker community on multiple occasions, and, well, they just love him. In this podcast, he shares why AI is going to transform the way we organize in ways we have never experienced before in history, the key reason why strategy execution fails and some tips for addressing them, and why attempts at organizational and particularly digital transformation so often create resistance, and how you can help mitigate that response. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony O'Driscoll. Tony, thank you so much for being here. It is great to get a chance to learn from you again. Pleasure to be here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So there are a couple of questions that we ask all of our guests just to get to know you a little bit personally. If you could finish this sentence for me, it may have nothing to do with your work at all. And I know you have a fascinating personal story, so it's hard to pick, but complete the sentence for me. If you really know me, you know that. I'm insanely curious. And when I encounter something that is unintuitive, I've got to bottom it out. I think it might be an affliction a little bit, right? It's that engineering mindset, I suppose, that I grew up in or was trained in, is that I take that rigor of the engineering world to the curiosity of the ambiguous world and try and figure it out, which translates into very little sleep. Because when you get into a world that's complex, it's rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. How do you then prioritize which rabbit holes to explore? by the level of ignorance I feel about the area. And that actually kind of defines my career. My students ask me all the time, like, how did you end up, whatever, being a professor at Duke and so on and so forth? Was that a 20-year plan? Absolutely not. It was just a series of random events where the decision was largely like, well, that'd be cool, something I've never done before, but primarily something I'm really curious to figure out. I also believe that there's a find-it-out world and a figure-it-out world. The find-it-out world is the world of physics and things we figured out. We know it, and gravity is 9.8 meters per second. And then there's the figure-it-out world, which is things we are yet to understand. I like to lean into the things we are yet to understand. 
are you saying that there is acquiring knowledge that already exists and then there's the creating of the knowledge? Is that similar? More specifically, I'd say productive learning is teaching people things we know how to do. So we figured it out. You know, the science and engineering and that kind of stuff is essentially taking the real world to a layer of abstraction that we can then quantify and then we can repeat on an ongoing basis. You know, I mean, it's kind of like heuristic algorithm kind of axiom type of reductionist way of thinking, which I'm very well trained in as an electrical engineer. The paradox of that is that's to try to make sense of something like, how do I build a bridge? You got to know the laws of gravity. You got to know the laws of physics, so on and so forth. But then there's like, how do I know my wife loves me? Kind of a different thing, you know? <laughs> Maybe we could take a whole bunch of psychological batteries and so on and so forth, but there's kind of a knowing or there's a truth that is beyond provability with a nod to Roger Martin, right? He says, within an organization, if you want to kill innovation, it only takes two words, prove it. There's this dichotomy of the rigor of science to reduce things to a repeatable process or a law or an axiom. But then at the edge of that, there's the vast unknown that requires a different way. You want to take that same rigor of trying to bottom things out, but you want to point that at curiosity and possibility to try to identify possible progression paths that could become plausible, but then become perhaps provable. So I see things like an expanding sphere, you know what I mean? I think there's a point at which maybe our current definition of how we think about science may not have the capability to explain that. And as AI starts to come in, and I mean this next level like GPT-3 and all that stuff that's just come out, I feel that we might have a new set of capabilities and affordances that if used properly, in my book I talk about the human-machine interface, I think we've thought about AI too anthropomorphically. It's almost like Turing tests and can it do exactly what we do and so on and so forth. If you think about the latest AlphaGo, where AlphaGo essentially beat the world's Go master. AlphaGo played itself for 20 minutes to an hour, depending on who you read, but not for months in this game that's been played by human beings for 2,500 years. And in the third or fourth play, the grandmaster of AlphaGo stood back from his table and said, WTF, because the machine intelligence had made a move that no human had ever conceived of that was within the rules, was in the boundaries of the game that he didn't know how to respond to. So what I'm trying to say is there's a different intelligence that's emerging now that's a machine intelligence that, you know, is kind of black box. We don't know exactly how it does. And so I feel as we move more towards the future, our ability to leverage technological affordance to do the impossible will increase. As long as we get the human-machine calculus right, we ought to allow the machines to do what they do really well. Now, you know, the standardized work stuff, that's easy. We know that they can do that, right? A calculator can figure out math way faster than we can. But now it's moving into GPT passed the bar last week, the essay part of the bar, right? So you got the multiple choice. Any computer could pass that at this point in time, but it actually literally passed the essay part. This is where we start talking about, you know, the white collar work. Mark Andreessen once said software is eating the world, right? It's eating now, I think, into some of those radiology. Perfect for machines. So let the machines do what they do. That's one thing. That's almost automating what we do as humans. But I'm talking about a different kind of thing. I'm talking about machine intelligence that renders out something completely different than what we might have thought of. So the example I just gave you was where the machine came up with a legitimate rule in this game that's been played by humans for 2,500 years that none of us ever thunk up. It thunk it up a different way. And it won. Yeah, so my question is, why now? And if it really is different, is there a past revolution or transformation that we can learn from to try to predict how it's going to unfold? Well, I think you have to go up to another layer of abstraction. I do feel this is a very pivotal time. You know, there's all these arguments about, is this really any different than back in the day, World War II, whatever. There's been all of these revolutions, so to speak. 
What I'm perceiving now, though, is just as we're beginning to exit the liminality of COVID, by liminality, it's like that space between you've had to let go of what you know because the world dictated it. Work isn't what it used to be. You're stuck in your home, all that. And you haven't quite grabbed the trapeze for what will be. You're unclear about what will be. So you're living in what that's defined as liminality. You're kind of sitting in this liminal space. Some people define this as the fog of war. So we've also got that going on. We got COVID. We got the fog of war. From a personal perspective, the FUD factor is quite high. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I'm kind of stuck in stasis. I'm not sure where I'm going. What used to be doesn't make sense anymore. What do I do? That's at an individual level. At precisely the time when I do believe we're having the next step change revolution in the capability of AI. So either those two, Cayenne, can bifurcate or we can try and link them up. I'm a big advocate for the second rather than the first. Just like any prior step change, you know, steam power, electrical power, mass production, all of those things that we've seen as being significant changes. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is how we used to do things looks retrospectively completely insane. We used to travel around on horses. I think we are at that kind of moment, but I almost feel like the stakes for humanity are much higher than they have been before because it's also compounded by the human part of this ecosystem essentially being back on its heels. There's probably not a person on the planet, Kaihan, who hasn't faced some existential, at least question, over the last three years. Do I want to keep doing this work anymore? Why am I here? We've all had to go inwardly to our very core at some point in time during these last three years. So we have changed, we the human species, if you will, in one collective moment over a three-year period. And at the same time, technology marches on. As Kevin Kelly would say, technology doesn't necessarily have a conscience. It just keeps on marching forward. This is the point I'm trying to make is that we collectively as humanity tend to be a little bit back on our heels. The FUD factor is high, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Sheryl Sandberg talks a lot about leaning in. I get a feeling we're kind of leaning back. And yet, technology is just about to take yet another step change. So how do we reconcile humanity and technology in a way that is beneficial for all of us? That's the big overarching question I'm orbiting. Yes, yeah, issue because what's triggering for me is that I think of your long, interesting career, if I simplified it, electrical engineer, working at Nortel Networks, solving technology problems, and then taking that approach and applying it to people and organizations. But what I'm also hearing is there is that approach to organizations from technology and then the interface of technology and humans. Tell us about your recent work where you started looking at organizational structures and digital transformation. So that came out, as you know, of work with Brightline. PMI's think tank, if you could call it that. Project Management Institute. Yeah, PMI. Oh, sorry. Yes, the PMI. And the question that was asked there was, why is it that, you know, pick your number, 60 to 70% of strategies fail? You get people in the room, you identify a source of competitive advantage, you figure out what capabilities you need, da, 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 on and on and on and on. And you do this with a fair amount of rigor and you have high certainty that if executed well, we will secure a position of advantage. And I'm very much with Rita on this, that, you know, the window of sustainability of advantage is narrowing. I know Rita and Roger had a very interesting conversation recently about that. And I think that's where they came out is that you always want to have competitive advantage. It's just the window within which you enjoy it is probably a little shorter. So you have to have subsequent competitive advantage or sequence competitive advantage. Now, if you dig deeper, which is what Brightline asked me to do, the reason is it's in execution. It's not in strategy. Like a really well-crafted strategy can still not be executed. And the interesting thing to me is execute in the English language has two meanings, to do or to kill. And unfortunately, the cultural aspect, the human aspect of the socio-technical system, if it doesn't understand the why, if it doesn't get why we are doing what we're doing, or if it disagrees with the premises, 
will essentially kill the strategy. Does that make sense? So what I came down to is it's not about the eloquence or cleverness of a strategy. It's about the discretionary effort of the humans who have to enact that strategy and make it happen. I used to work with Larry Prusak at IBM, who wrote all the knowledge management books, fantastic mentor of mine. And he said, you know, people in the middle of the organization, fan, they make the organization stop or go, stop or go. They're essentially, you know, the accelerator pedal or the brake pedal in the organization. Think about it this way. The CEO is sitting in a car driving the car and they believe they have control of the steering wheel. But the truth is that the center leaders, I call them center leaders, not middle managers, they essentially have control of the brake or the accelerator. And if those two aren't connected, then there's a problem. So that's why I became interested in, oh, it's the human part of the system, Stu. Which, as an engineer, took me a while, right? I was very technical, very Dr. Spock, if you will, and said everything could be reduced. And then I realized, hmm, I did all the quality movement stuff and everything else. I started to realize at the end of the day, organizations are nothing without humans. The humans literally breathe life into every organization on this planet. And if they don't understand the why behind something, or if they disagree with the premises or assumptions upon which any strategy has been formulated, you're going to have a really, really hard time. It'll be executed in the wrong way. It'll be killed rather than done. And that's where I became really interested in the human part of the system. Yes. And so you developed a framework around human-centered transformation. We probably don't have time to go through all of the aspects of it. However, can you give us a few of the key things that someone's seeking to create a transformation and preempt the human, technical, organizational rejection? What should we be thinking about? Well, the first thing I'd say is the tyranny of the tangible. I think to keep going with the Star Trek analogy, I'm probably aging myself here, but Captain Kirk was the captain of the starship and Scotty was the Scotsman down in the engine room. Mm -hmm. You're nodding, yep. you know, right? Yep. And anytime they got into a really, really difficult time, Captain Kirk would call down to Scotty and Scotty would go, I think we have to reverse the polarity. And it's kind of like, we're going to do the inversion converter or something like that. I think we put the technical horse in front of the human cart and we got it backwards. So in other words, whenever we try to drive a transformation, we typically pull on one of three levers, structure, technology, or process. Now, process can be assisted by technology. You know, so it's not only a structure, technology, process type of thing. Why do we do that? It's tangible. We can see it. The boxes are moving around on the chart. A new process is being implemented. A new piece of technology is being implemented. Reynolds calls it the tyranny of the tangible. We can point to something we're doing that says we're changing. Alison Reynolds, she coined the term, and I love it, the tyranny of the tangible. And so that's how we tend to look at change. Now, here's the thing. If you go back to the human part of the system for a second, we are here. We've been around for a long time. Why? Dinosaurs aren't. Other sapiens aren't. Homo sapiens are. Why? Because we developed a prefrontal lobe, because we were able to understand our position in a particular context. There's a lion, let me climb a tree. We could figure out how to overcome the superior power or energy that that animal might have, right? So by definition, we're super adaptable. I disagree completely that people resist change. We don't resist change at all. We embody change. That's why we're still alive. What we do resist is being changed. That's the kicker. Tell me more about that. It being imposed on us versus us choosing it? Correct. And I know you've had Martin Reeves on, right? So Martin, you know how much research Martin does, but you know, I want to say two years ago, they did a big study on this, or maybe even longer, where it's like, if you looked at organizations that had a structure, process, technology imposed upon the organization, as opposed to bringing the people in to co-create the change, their disengagement goes up threefold because it's like, it's being heaped on me. I'm not part of it. The idea I have here is belief and behavior before structure process technology. What new paradigms do we need to adopt and believe 
How do we need to shift our behavior to be in accordance with that new belief or paradigm? And then now we go into design thinking, how might we want to think about structure? How might we want to think about technology? How might we want to think about process in order to further support and reinforce those behaviors in service of our belief? So that's what I mean by we flip the equation. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. My father, who just passed away recently, was a professor for 58 years. And his areas were human-centered design, communication, and also human-machine interface, cybernetics. What he always said was, because you have accountability as one of the elements of your model, he would always say, you can't have accountability if you can't have choice. You can't say, you have to deliver me 50 and then have accountability for expecting that 50 unless the person got to choose. That gets to agency, right? So the framework we won't have time to go into, but you just hit on two elements. So how does this work? It's a people-centered transformation framework. So rule number one, put people first, not structure, process, technology. Rule number two, then, is you have to think about what culture do you want to imbue this place with? I do believe this, and I know, well, I'm pretty confident that you'll agree with me on this, that the business environment and the business landscape has evolved into a complex adaptive system by virtue of this technological ecosystem that we have created around the world, right? Essentially, we've got this electronic exoskeleton that blankets the whole planet that moves at the speed of light. You want proof of that? Just look at the 2008 GFC. If you looked at the stock market indexes from Shanghai to FTSE to New York and all around the world, literally at one point in time, it looked like one collective heartbeat. Wow. Literally, the whole thing went, you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a complex adaptive system in colloquial language, right? It's like the butterfly flaps its wings and then there's a tornado in Ireland. But that's actually possible. So what that means is we can't necessarily predetermine what the outcome will be. There's too many infinite paths. We're in a highly complex environment. So then what I would say is we're in a figure-it-out world. If we're in a figure-it-out world, meaning that we'll take one step and then something else will change because our very taking of the step within the complex adaptive system changes the environment, which means we will have to pivot. We will have to sense and respond. In that case, many eyes make light work. In that case, none of us is as smart as all of us. In that case, where you are proximally might have more value than where you sit hierarchically. And so how do we create a leadership system that it's almost like a central nervous system in a human being? The eye sees something or my finger touches something hot. The central nervous system of the organizational organism, I think about it as an organizational organism where data is sustenance. Data is like food. Learning and insight is metabolism. And then coordination, taking action and agency, is how we move forward. You can't determine which way to move forward. I can't tell you every step I'm going to take as a human being today, but I'll still get out at the end of the day. That's the idea. So I think about it more like an infinite game than a finite game, going back to cars, right? In the traditional business world, it was win-lose, value chain, find my position, build a moat, build a castle, squash the competition, own the industry. In the new world, as I think you've had read on here many times, it's an infinite game. The idea is that you want to build a constellation of capability within and outside your organizational firewall that has something to contribute in terms of capability that can create, deliver, and disseminate value, not capture, but disseminate value within that ecosystem so that the ecosystem stays alive. The idea here is everyone who's playing the game wants the ecosystem to stay alive, and they contribute their part to make that happen. That's a very different mental model of the landscape within which value is being created, delivered, and distributed, and it's a very different leadership system within and across the organizations that are part of that ecosystem to be able to keep on keeping on. It's a fundamentally different paradigm of the world we're operating in today. 
Yeah. And that brings us right back to what you opened us up with was that we therefore may be in that, I think you used the word liminal, that we're letting go of one mindset, paradigm, whatever, and getting our heads around what could be the new one for operating in this constantly dynamic environment. Right. And you know, when COVID came, there's three things, I think. Some things have been accelerated. My mother now gets her groceries online. That would have never happened without COVID. You know what I mean? And we all have those stories. But if you're in physical retail, you got clobbered. If you were the airline industry, you got clobbered because nobody's traveling. Some things were accelerated. The number I've heard most, this is not empirical, just hearsay, is maybe we've advanced 10 years in the digital adoption revolution. And then maybe some of those purely physical entities might have taken a pretty serious hit. So that's accelerated and decelerated. The third one I would say is paradigmatic. Because we've all been put through this period of liminality in the world that we were in before, we've seen some things accelerate and some things decelerate. But I think where we're going to land on the other side is we're going to land in a different paradigm. We're going to land in an ecosystem paradigm. We were kind of sort of there, but I think we've been pushed there through a series of forces, which means we're going to have to rethink a lot of things about what does leadership mean? What does organization mean? What does value creation mean? And how do we do that? And more importantly, how do we do that where the benefits accrue not just to the firm, but to all stakeholders? And largely then again to, you know, the planet we're on. Everyone's like, oh, let's save the planet. How arrogant of us. The planet will be here long after Homo sapiens are no longer around. So let's be good stewards of that thing, because the better stewards we are of it, the longer we'll last. I want to buy an option on humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got so many questions and we just opened doors. Unfortunately, we're reaching the top of our time with you. So how can people find you and connect with you? Certainly find Everyday Superhero and read that. Certainly the book that you published with Brightline. Certainly go to Duke and take your class if we can find you. How else can people connect with you to learn from you? So I have a website called complexsimple.com. Complex Simple, C-O-M-P-L-E-X-S-I-M-P-L-E. And in there, I have a lot of my writings from previously. I spent a lot of time looking at complexity just because as an electrical engineer, that's something I studied, the math of it, so to speak. What I've really tried to do is take this rigor of the electrical engineering world, but then relax the need for certainty, relax the need for a tautological outcome, be more open on arcs of possibility, but still bring the rigor in terms of wanting to bottom things out. And, you know, it's different, but I'm enjoying it. There's so much more to figure out. I'll go back to where we began, right? Curiosity is what drives me. So I'm going to be busy for a very, very long time. I'll go back to one thing Tom Peters said a long time ago that really resonated with me, He said, if you're in consulting, here's the one-liner that you need to understand. If you're working with a client and you're working on a very complex project, you'd say, dear Mr. and Mrs. Klein, we've been working on this for a long time now. And we're more confused than ever. But we're confused at a higher level about more important things. And I think that's part of what we're looking for is what I'm finding with this is you kind of have to elevate up to purpose and principle if you're dealing with complex and adaptive, not rule. Because I think the rules can't hold as long in a complex adaptive system, but a principle could or a purpose could. So purpose can be that ground truth that helps you break trade-offs. Because I feel change is now endemic in every system and all it's doing is throwing off trade-offs. So now it's not like problems to be solved, it's polarities to be navigated. And they emerge and they converge. It's almost like the strategic landscape used to be terra firma. Now it's almost like we're out at sea. So there's no hill to take anymore because the hill could become a valley very quickly. And it's all moving around. Yep, but purpose maybe could be 
the one steady state that we can anchor to. You go back to the analogy, you know, Bill George, the true north. The star is always there. The sea is very messy. You might have to navigate all the way around. It keeps you from getting seasick too, being able to see. Yes. But the other thing is you need everybody on the boat, if you want to keep going with that metaphor, to kind of be working together towards that true north. And you can't just rely on the leader. In other words, it's a leadership system where the goal is to keep on keeping on. Yep. Yeah, I got it. Well, Tony, thank you so much for scratching the surface and for the work you do and for spending some time to open this up to it here. It's really fun having conversations with you, Kai, and I really appreciate the nuance and we should do it more. Yeah, it was really fun. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.